The following for the city sermon is from our sermon series by Pastor Scott Rising entitled Feast for Failures from the book of Luke. We hope you enjoy it. So last week, as we were talking, uh, the disciples, Jesus was telling them how to make friends for eternity uh, and how to steward, let's say, their wealth or all things that were given to them. It appears, though, not everybody actually enjoyed this teaching. So look at verse 14 with me. It says, the Pharisees. By the way, I can't keep reteaching all these different pieces, but the Pharisees were like the pastors of that time, right? They were to be the example for God's people to look at. They were to be the guides that would guide people through the Old Testament or what they would call scriptures. So the Pharisees, listen to what it says, who were lovers of money, heard all these things that Jesus was saying, right? And they ridiculed him. Not what you expect, right, for people who profess to love God, right? But this should not be shocking to us. And and the reason I say that is because the Word of God always elicits a response. There's no one who's just indifferent with the Word of God. There might be some text, let's say, that you're like, ah, I don't really care. But but the Word of God is is, a hammer. I mean, it, it crushes the hardest of hearts, but it also will harden clay. And so there are people who hear the word, and by God's grace, they embrace that word as true, because it is true. They, they enjoy that word, even if it's the medicine that they don't necessarily want. God gives them grace to, to receive it. But there are many other people, and, and myself included, until the Lord rescued me at the age of 23, who would hear the word of God or certain parts of scripture and just be like, yeah, nope, don't want that. Don't want that. Don't want to hear that teaching, right? Why? Because it would often confront my rebellion. And this word obviously has touched the Pharisees in in a way that they are not excited, right? Um, The word of God brings about faith or, or rejection. And you might think, well, I'm just kind of indifferent. That is rejection. That's just passive rejection, right? Um, softening or hardening. And, and it appears Jesus' word is hardening the, these men's heart. It shows that his parable, his teaching, his story on money has really exposed their true nature. Uh, notice it says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money. Right? These were to be examples to God's people. What does it look like to worship God? However, it, it's clear, and we've seen this all throughout Luke, their piety or their religion, it's actually a sham. It's a joke. Not all of the Pharisees, but, but let's say the majority, especially those who are interacting with Jesus. Worse yet, they're idolaters. Meaning they're, they're, they're not worshiping the one true God, although they would say they worship the one true God. The reason I say that is because right leading into this, this text that we're looking at is verse 13. Verse 13 says, no servant can serve two masters, for he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Jesus says, you cannot serve God in money. And, and the Pharisees heard that and, and they ridiculed that teaching. They ridiculed it because oftentimes, and this still happens today, it's why the prosperity gospel is such a joke. We think that, that money coming in is an absolute sign of blessing in God's favor. This is why they didn't like this teaching, right? Because they thought, no, the the reason we're doing so well is because God's blessing us. Well, what Jesus is about to say is that you do not understand the scriptures that you teach, right? They don't love God. They don't love people. They use God and, and, and people to serve their ends, 
right? And this is often how religion works. And I say religion in this sense in a negative connotation. It's the dark side of surface level religion, right? With your lips, you say you love God, but your heart's very far from God, right? We've all seen this. We've all interacted with this. And if we could be honest, we've all been hypocrites to this. And we've done this, right? Um, They appear to be righteous to everyone around them. If you could see a Pharisee in that time, they had big hats. They had all these these fancy robes and different things so that when people would see them coming down, they're like, oh, there's the big shots. Jesus was not impressed. He was not impressed. As a matter of fact, he could see what was happening on the inside. Even though on the outside they were fooling a lot of people, they did not fool God. They did not love God. They did not love his word. And they didn't love those who were made in his image. And Jesus had a real problem with this. And so he continues. Look at 15 through 18. And he said to them, You're those who who justify yourselves before men, right? So you're worried about the applause of man. He says, but God knows your heart. By the way, it's it's funny to see that in the Bible because our culture, we love to use God knows our heart to defend ourselves, especially when we're generally doing things that are not great. Like, well, you, you can't judge me. God knows my heart. Like as if that's a good thing, right? He does know your heart. And, and the Bible talks about our hearts and it talks about us being deceitful and wicked, and how we can't even understand our own hearts. Many times, even when we think we have good motives, it's generally intertwined about us. But here, Jesus is saying, God God knows your heart. He knows what's happening under the hood, right? He says, for what is exalted among men, right? That which is applauded among all these people is an abomination in the sight of God. He says the law and the prophets. Anytime you hear that phrase within the Bible, just think scripture, or you could say Old Testament wasn't old to them. It was their Bible, right? So think scriptures. He says it was until John, meaning John the baptizer, right? Since then, though, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone is forcing, it says, his way into it. Uh, everyone's encouraged to enter through the narrow door. They're pressing their way in, right? We've seen lepers and sinners and tax collectors all coming in to the kingdom of God. And Jesus is welcoming them. He's welcoming them. And, And the way in, by the way, is repentance of sin and trusting in God, right? And so here they come, one come all, and they're running to Christ to, to have life. Now, the people who teach the scriptures, they're not actually pressing their way in. They don't actually want in. They, they don't like the way Jesus is saying it goes. And so they contest him. He says, but it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. And then here comes this verse that really is uh, a curveball. He says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Uh, meaning the truth of this is not a curveball. It's why here. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. By the way, if you want me to get into all the marriage and divorce, keep coming, because it's not going to happen today, because that's not his main point. See, what, what Jesus is doing by saying these things is he's saying, your lips don't match your life. 
It doesn't add up. Jesus is saying that the law and the prophets in verse 16 were proclaimed up until John, meaning John the baptizer had a foot in a previous age, right? But he also had his foot in a coming age, the dawning of the new age with with Jesus putting on flesh and bringing the good news of the gospel, the covenant, the new covenant, right? Where we love God and love others, which always was the case, which was always the case. But this new kingdom age has arrived now where the eternal God, Christ, has put on flesh. We'll talk about that at Christmas time, right? The incarnation of God, Jesus coming to seek and to save the lost. But now that Jesus has arrived, things were going to be a little different, right? Um, the law and the prophets described a certain time and a certain place in, in how we behaved and worshiped God, right? To do that, you had, you had to go to, to Israel, you had to go into Jerusalem, you had to go to the temple, you had to be a Jewish man, woman, and there was cleanliness laws, and there were civil laws, and then there was all these different things. But now, there's the day that's coming, Jesus is saying, he would tell the woman at the well, the day has come where you will no longer worship in a place, but you'll worship God in spirit and truth, right? It doesn't matter about where you're at, it's, it's where you're at in relation to God, right? Because those who know me, you can worship him in Greensburg, you can worship him in Jeanette, because we worship in spirit and in truth. So something's changed here, right? There's going to be a new covenant. Things would be different. But the question becomes, okay, Jesus, why are you saying this to the Pharisees now? Because he's speaking of what was promised in the new covenant. And and you see this in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. By the way, hang in there because you might be like, what does this have to do with me 2,000 years later? Oh, it's very relevant. It's very relevant. The Word of God is always timely, right? But, but look here. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. Then I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand and bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Notice the I will statements. I will put my law within them. I will write write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall know, they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity or their transgression sin, and I will remember their sin no more. What's he saying? He's saying this is not going to be an external religion. It's going to be very personal. I'm going to write the truth of of my law, which is good on their heart. He's saying, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to rip out this heart of stone that rebels against God. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh, one that that feels and and loves God, desires to obey Him, right? And, And actually gives us real power through the work of the Spirit to obey Him, okay? This is completely different. So Jesus understood that the arrival of this time has come. Now, don't get it wrong. He's not doing away with, let's say, the moral law of God, right? When you think about the law of God, you have moral, you have civil, and you have dietary. So this is why when people say, let's say, let's say they don't really enjoy God, and they don't enjoy God's people, and they're like, well, you don't obey everything because I seen you eat bacon-wrapped scallops last week. I did to the glory of God. The, the reason that's not breaking 
the law of God is because the dietary law is not on a Gentile like me, right? Those who are not Jewish, right? And by the way, Jews are freed up from that too because the, the civil and the, the dietary laws are gone. But the moral law of God has always been good and it remains. The difference is, is Jesus obeyed all the law perfectly in our place because we couldn't, Okay. So, so why does this matter? Because Jesus is bringing the law to its ultimate purpose in this. What does that mean? He's fulfilling the promise. He's fulfilling the Old Testament in his life, in his teaching, in his substitutionary death, and ultimately in his resurrection. See, the arrival of the fulfillment of the promise means that people come to God through faith in Christ and what he has done, not what we do. We could never live up to the standard of the law because the standard of the law was perfection. And yet the Pharisees often would try, but they knew they were hypocrites, but they would fool other people. Oh, wow, look at, look at Jim, right? Jim, he's tithing out of his old, uh, you know, his cupboard where he's got those spices. What a, what a righteous guy. He prays all the time. He prays all these amazing prayers. And, and they love the applause of man, but their hearts are far from God. And Jesus sees it, and, and he's not pleased. He's not pleased at all. By the way, the arrival of Jesus in the kingdom does not do away with the moral law of God, right? But, but it does transform the hearts of citizens to desire to obey God, right? So if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Jesus for your salvation, he's doing a renovation project, in your life, in, in your heart. This doesn't happen the first instant you're saved, right? But what he does do is he strips this thing down to the foundation and he starts to build in your life a desire to obey. Not to be saved, but because you are saved, right? And so it changes literally everything. How we interact with other people, how we interact with God, obviously, because now we have full access to the throne room of grace. But then how we interact with finances, and this is what Jesus is getting at. But, but here's the thing, the religious elite didn't grasp it, and if they did, they wanted no part of it, which is why Jesus mentions divorce in verse 18. You're like, well, why? Well, he's not trying to do a sermon on marriage and divorce, but what he's showing is that God's law remains, and actually it's elevated, right? You've heard Jesus say that, that if you lust after a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. That raises the bar of the law, and that's exactly what he's doing here because he's actually quoting Deuteronomy 24, and Deuteronomy 24 doesn't have as strict a standard as Jesus just put on this, so he's saying, I know that you're giving certificates of divorce to people, oh, and they love you for it. They're applauding you for it. As a matter of fact, if you look back and study history at that time, which you may or may not ever want to do, but I find it absolutely interesting to see that they would let a man divorce a woman at that time if she burnt the chicken or the lamb, <laughs> right? Could you, I mean, could you imagine? Just get rid of her. And, and the reason the guys love this is pretty obvious, but this made the Pharisees really popular at that time. And Jesus said, you don't love God. You don't love his law. I know what you're doing, and I'm not pleased. It's a sham. It's a sham. And, and he's gone after these guys. Uh, Levi always liked to say, it's, it's like savage Jesus coming right now. And he really is. But he loves these men, and he wants to show them that, that your righteousness is just surface level. It's never affected your heart. Oh, and how many times this can happen to us. See, essentially what Jesus is doing, he's laying open their heart, and it's wicked, 
and it's cynical. It's mocking God who's in the flesh. It's mocking his teaching. It's self-justifying. It's essentially, it's dead. They have dead religion because they have dead hearts towards God. Their, their mouths don't match up with their lives. And so Jesus is saying, essentially, do whatever it takes to press your way in to the kingdom. Get in here. Do whatever it takes to enter into the narrow gate. And, and what that means is you're going to have to stop trying to do this on your own. Oh, how many times religion loves to teach that it's, it's just do it, right? It's, it's Jesus and me. We're going to get our way in there. No, you, it's Christ alone. You have, you have no hope other than Christ died to save sinners. Well, Jesus and my good works. No, good works are a fruit of salvation. They're, they're not added into the work of salvation, unless you mean Jesus' good works. What's he saying? He's, he's saying, exchange your God. Exchange your God. You're worshiping money. You're worshiping the approval of man. Exchange your God. Worship me, is essentially what he's saying here. And it's what he's saying to you and I. The Apostle John issued a warning about the love of money in 1 John 3.17. He says, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Answer, it doesn't. That's exactly what he would go on to say throughout that whole book. James, Jesus' younger brother, says the same thing in chapter 2 of James 15 and 16. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, not... Not meaning they don't wear Gucci, right? I'm just saying, like, they don't have appropriate clothing, right? And lacking in daily food. And one of you says to them, go in peace. Be warmed and filled. Could you, I mean, could you just imagine they don't have a coat? Oh, well, bless you, brother. Go in peace and, and be warm. I'll be warm if you give me one of your 53 coats, right? Without giving them the things they need for the body. He's, he says, what good is that religion? Answer, it's not. It's, it's worthless. It's a sham. So what is being said? Faith, listen, faith in Christ that has no impact on our behavior. How we love, how we interact with one another, in a, and I'm talking in a very tangible way. He's talking about giving a coat to someone who's cold is not authentic Christian faith. That's what he's saying. It, you could be the Pope and not be a saved man. It's terrifying to think about, right? But what is he getting at? Real faith acts. It does. Why? Because you're alive in God. God is alive in you. And, and guess what? The measure of that is not how much you know. It, it's how much you love. It's how much you love God. Yes, that's knowing, right? Our whole mind, our whole heart, our whole lives. But, but it's expressed in one another, particularly with one another within the church, right? How embarrassing would it be if we came here every Sunday and we see someone in destitute need and we were just like, God bless you, brother. God bless you, sister. I'll be praying for you. When you have the things that they need that would help their lives, something's very wrong if that would happen, and yet it, it can happen. But Jesus is saying real faith acts. Real faith does. Real, real faith serves. It cares about those... Uh, in need. It cares about others. It cares about neighbors. It cares about your brother and sister in Christ, and especially the poor. Especially the poor. Something's wrong if you say that I love God, but you don't help anyone in real need, 
I'm talking about real need. What does that look like? I, I think if you just spend time with people, you'll find out real quick, there's plenty of opportunities to help people in need. There's just plenty of opportunities. And so Jesus continues this sober warning with a parable that you probably all know. So this is where we spend the rest of our time now. So he's going to go right into a parable, and it's, in, it's found in verse 19 through 31. I'm going to read the thing in whole, and then we're going to say, okay, what can we learn from the truth of this word? And, and God, help us to apply it to our lives. Help, it, help us to apply it in a way that it that it transforms us, that it changes us. Not in a way that, oh, I learned something really new today, and it's really pithy, and I can't wait to post it. No, to where it changes how I love. To where it changes how I love. And it might be that you see, I don't love like that. That's good news if you hear that, if you will hear that in a way that brings you to a place of repentance and faith. Because Jesus has loved perfectly in your place. And then say, God, cause my heart to love like that. Cause my heart to be generous like that. Cause me to have true religion. One that really my lips do match my life. Not always, not perfectly. That's never going to happen. But to where I'm growing to be more like you and less like myself. So that's been my prayer as I think about this text. So let's look at it. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple. By the way, super expensive to make. The most expensive color ever to make because you had to have like some exotic little snail or mussel and crush it and who cares. But the reason you should care is because you didn't have that color unless you were royalty or like uber wealthy. Okay? So get the picture. A rich man. He's clothed in purple. Fine linen. Uh, that's undergarments. Okay, that's undergarments. Who, was, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus. By the way, rich man has no name here. Lazarus, poor man, does. He's covered with sores. Who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs, uh, give a word on dogs because everyone in this culture is strange with dogs in a lot of ways compared to this time. We love puppies. I love puppies. We have a Luna, a dog named Luna, right? She's a great pup, two years old. We enjoy her. Don't think puppies like that in this time, right? This, think scavenger. Uh, think a wild jackal, nasty little thing, right? And, and he came and licked his sores. That's disgusting, right? Don't think he's trying to heal him, right? It's like, we're waiting for you to die, bud because we're going to feast on you. That's the picture that's laid here. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. It's a picture of heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, right, this is a picture of hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and to cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you've received good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none 
may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send, my, send him, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said to them, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. All right, so you, you may be familiar with this parable. Um, however, I will tell you, if you take this parable in isolation, you can do all sorts of strange things to it. But let's stay in context with what Jesus is doing here, right? Uh, which is a simple word on Bible interpretation. Never read a verse by itself. Always read before, always read after. Say, what is happening here? Why is he telling this story, right? Think about a movie. If we were to go in to see a movie and we walked into the middle of the movie and only watched 15 minutes of that movie, never seeing the beginning, never seeing the end, and we walk out of there and say, I know the story, you know a piece of the story, and chances are it's very strange how you've interpreted that. Which is why, side note, uh, for the City Church, we're going to go through the Old Testament, if you would like, um, meaning we're not going to force anyone to do this, but I'm going to encourage you to go through the Old Testament with me next year. We're going to read through it, and, uh, and we're just going to work our way through the Old Testament in one year. And we're going to have some different teachings on that so that you can get to know the God of the Bible, so you can see all the promises that Jesus fulfilled. It will help you to enjoy the New Testament more, I promise you. It will help you to enjoy Jesus more, I promise you, if you engage in that. So end a side note, be looking for some news on that soon. I do want to say this, though. People don't need any special knowledge or training to understand sin, to understand God's grace, to understand forgiveness, to understand salvation, to understand that King Jesus is worthy of worship when engaging the Word of God. Too many times we, we talk like this, like you've you got to have some special insight or you need some, you know, really intellectual man or woman to teach you the Word of God. No, the, the Lord will work with you right where you're at with the Word of God. Just say, Lord, teach me, help me, and read the Word of God. He loves to reveal himself to humble hearts. So, so come to the Word, needy, and ask him, show me yourself, show me your grace. Show me your mercy. Show me your forgiveness. Help me to know you. I promise you, if you do that and you engage in his word, he will show you more of himself. Now, back to the text. You, you could think the point of this parable is to paint a picture of hell. Primarily, it's not. It, it's not. Or, or that it teaches that rich people go to hell and all the poor people are like, yeah. Or that people, all poor people go to heaven. It's not about that either. It's not saying... Either of those things. See, here's the deal. This is why it's so important to read the Bible in context. One misses the mark. The other teaches something that doesn't even show itself in accord with Scripture. For instance, Abraham was very wealthy. Very wealthy. Extremely rich. He's in heaven. What was the difference? He had faith in God. He had faith in God. So what's the main point of this text? Here's the main point. Jesus is giving a stinging rebuke to reveal that the Pharisees, how they treated those who they thought were beneath them was deplorable in God's sight and how God feels about it. They, they were supposed to be leading people to God and they were just using people. 
And we're going to see this more and more as we engage in the gospel of Luke. Jesus is, is using these parables to help them see that they need a Savior. They don't think they need a Savior. You may be here thinking you don't need a Savior. You may be here thinking, I'm pretty good. Well, you might be compared to some people, but in comparison to God, who is perfect, you and I all fall short. Every one of us. There's no one here that's graduated to the point, you're like, I don't need any more grace. Don't need any more forgiveness. Don't need any more mercy. I've arrived. It's none of us. That's none of us. But, but boy, how you, if you hang around people, you can, you can think yourself that way. And, and many times when that happens, your heart will go astray. So they have no excuse. Why? Because Jesus says, you have the law and the prophets. You have the word of God. You have everything you needed to understand how you were to interact with people who were poor and destitute, how you were to utilize the wealth that God had given you. It is a blessing, but you're using that for your own benefit, and you're not using it to benefit anybody else, and he has a real problem with that. Remember, the context is make friends that are eternal. Steward all that God has given you in a way that people might know the generosity of God by the way you live. If you say you love God, but all you fret about is your 401k and your job and all these things, and whether you have the nicest clothes and you have the newest car and you have the big house on the hill, if that's all you think about, if that's your driver, you don't love God. You love money. I, I was there. I, I mean, I was so there. I used to do pretty well in the money realm. And it had me. I didn't have it. I'm going to tell you right now, it's slavery. If you look across the world right now, everybody thinks if I just had a little bit more, I'd be happy. Everybody's got a little bit more. No one's happy. No one's happy. America is the most depressed nation in all the world. And it is the wealthiest. And I don't think the two are by accident. If money would make you happy, we should be the happiest people ever. But it, but it doesn't. Not if you expect it to do a God thing, because it cannot. So, let's, let's unpack the, this truth and see how to live in light of that truth. So, I want to look at this, this text, let's say, in four simple ways. And we'll land a plane and we'll be done in no time. Ready? There's two men. you got a rich man. He enjoyed all the luxuries, right? Wealth could, could afford. I mean, listen, homeboy lived and dressed like a king. He may have been a king in this parable. I don't know. Purple is the color of royalty. This guy's eating the finest of foods every day, right? This is like, not many will you get this because you're young, but for my older friends, lifestyles of the rich and famous Bible times, right? I can tell who understood that and those who are like, hmm, Gabe just laughs, right? So, so that's, that's this guy. But then how about Lazarus, the poor man? What a pitiful picture. It, it's, he said he was laid at the gate. Chances are this man was inside and he was a servant, he was a servant, but now he's starting to die, and he's not able to do much. So let's just lay him outside the gate, right? He, he's longing for the crumbs to fall off this king's table so he can eat. It's sad. How pathetic that dogs are actually feasting on his festering wounds. 
pretty nasty. He's about to die. This is a picture of total neglect. It's, it's a picture of having zero compassion. And, and don't miss it. He's saying those who love money more than love God, this is how you treat people. This isn't for some faraway people, right? These men couldn't have been more different, right? One was rich, one was poor. One feasted while one was about to be feasted upon. One was clothed in purple, one was covered in sores. Do you get the contrast, right? The the nameless rich man was clearly aware of Lazarus. By the way, Lazarus' name, which it's the only time in any parable that Jesus gives that he gives a name. And you want to know what Lazarus' name means? It means God is my help. That's what it means. I love this, right? But imagine today, we would see this guy, we'd see this cat, and we'd be like, man, he needs to get with God so God could help him. He's trusting in God. How do we know? Because he's at Abraham's side, right? But he's at the gate. He's in extreme need, and there's no indication Lazarus got any help from this rich man, ever, not one time. It's clear that this man doesn't give a rip about him, right? He do, this rich man doesn't care about making friends for eternity. He sees someone who he could obviously help, and every day he walks past him. He's an idol worshiper. He loves his money. He does not love people, and it's an abomination before God. They did have one thing in common, though. They died, both of them. It's one thing we all have in common. The going rate, 100%, right? Two destinies, though. Look at the rich man. He had a proper, proper burial. He probably had a fancy tomb. We don't know. He goes then to Hades, which is the realm of the dead, or, or hell, you could say, where he's in torment. He's in anguish. He's in flame. His wealth is of zero help here. He cannot buy himself out of this, right? This is a sobering reminder that man's earthly condition is no indicator of God's favor in sight of of other people. You should never look at somebody and say, I know how they got here. You might know, but you might be just dead wrong. You you might have no clue. One writer said this, the rich man's biography could be summed up in three statements. He wore important underwear. He had lots of fun. He died and was buried. And I'll tell you what, when you boil life down to the things of that, you you can see how this life, there's so much more. Oh, how many times we're fooled into living for this life alone with no thought of what's to come. And that's life with God. Lazarus, though, no mention of burial. it's It's not a crazy thought to think that the dogs ate him, right? That happened in the Old Testament all the time. However, after his death, angels carried his soul to be with with this poor beggar to be at Abraham's side. I don't know how long he lived. Let's say 60 years, right? I'm just making that up. That's a horrible 60 years, it sounds like. But he has eternity to live with God now. Wildly different than than the rich man, right? He was welcomed. We think about last week's text. He was welcomed into heaven by Abraham. This would have been one of their guys. They would have loved Abraham, right? Father Abraham, right? Genesis 12. This is a big deal guy to the Jewish people. And, And he welcomes him into heaven. Now notice the contrast. Lazarus' earthly condition is no indication of his value in the sight of God either. That should shatter all the the false teaching of the prosperity gospel. Meaning if you love God enough with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, your life will go well. It might, but it might go awful. This man loved God. 
this is nobody's dream life. Laying outside, having dogs lick your sores. Right? You may have a good life here on earth, but just don't make it ultimate. Worship God. Give thanks. Why? Because, because otherwise, you're not giving praise to the one who gave you the gifts, the abilities to enjoy the life that you've had. Right? I thank God for rich people. And actually, I'm not even being funny when I say that. Because we need people who have wealth who utilize that in a way to leverage the gospel going to places that the, that the world's not heard the good news of Jesus. The Bible is not about against making money. It's against you loving it more than you love God. So make money. Be generous, though. Right? Be generous. Well, there's two requests, notice. Both of them come from the rich man, by the way. One's a plea for himself. Look, Father, Abraham, have mercy on me. He had no mercy on, on, on Lazarus laying outside. And notice he's bossing Lazarus around still. Send Lazarus to dip his, the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue from an anguish in this flame. <laughs> I can't think that would last long. The other's a plea for his brothers, though. He goes, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. I have five brothers so that he may warn them. He's still sending them to do his bidding, right? That they may come to the, never come into this place of torment. Now, here's the thing. Father Abraham graciously denies both requests. It's interesting. He, he doesn't scold him. By the way, I think this is how uh, we get a little picture of how we ought to interact with people who don't trust and believe in Jesus. He's kind to him. He says it in a very respectful way. He says, child, remember, right? There's no need to be rude to people who don't know and love Jesus Christ. The reason they don't know is because they've not been given the gift of sight, of faith. So, so we got to be kind. It is the kindness of God that leads people to repentance, right? You would never look at someone who's physically blind and say, I just don't understand why you just don't enjoy the sunset. What's your problem? Right? But we, we might do this with people who don't see the beauty of God and say, well, what an idiot. You just want to go to hell? They can't see. Oh, God, ha have us have a heart of mercy on people who don't know the Lord. Help us to be full of compassion. Help us to be kind. Help, help us to see as you see. This is an image bearer made in your liking. And you love him. You sent Jesus to die for him or her. Help me to serve them. Help me to love them. God, use me to help them to see your beauty. Well, how do you do that? Be kind. May they see God's grace through our lives, church. So, he says, child, remember. He, 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 essentially, he says to the first request, there can be no relief for you. Right? Why? Because there's this great chasm fixed between us. Jesus teaches, listen, this is not popular the world scoffs at this teaching to this day. There is a real place called heaven. There is a real place called hell. And Jesus is teaching here that the finality of death in relation to our eternal sentence. It's eternal. There's no purgatory. It doesn't exist. It's not in the Bible. I don't say that to poke, poke at anybody who might think that's true. But, but go back to the word of God. It's not there. It's appointed once for a man or a woman to die, and then comes the judgment. There's no hitting reset. After death, there's no opportunity to repent or change one's destiny. 
there's an unbridgeable chasm between heaven and hell. This is real. You're like, well, I don't believe it. It, it doesn't change the truth of God's word. Well, that just seems so unreasonable. That may seem unreasonable to you, but it is the absolute truth. And we get no joy in boasting about that. But I, but I got to tell you, when you read the word of God, he will reveal this to you. Why do I say that? Because look what he says. They have Moses and the prophets. Remember, he said, send, send Lazarus to tell my brothers, tell my five brothers, let them know of the torment and so that they might repent and not join me here. And Jesus says, no, they have Moses and the prophets, meaning they have the scripture, they have the Bible, let them hear them. And he said, oh, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to them, if they do not hear, once again, the scripture, they don't hear the Bible, neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. By the way, insert joke here, because who's going to raise from the dead? You won't even believe it then, is what he's saying. By the way, there's another guy who was raised from the dead. His name was Lazarus. And he won't believe that either. As a matter of fact, if you study that account in the book of John, they, they, they want to kill Lazarus. Why? Because if word of this gets out, they are going to destroy our power is essentially what happens. Oh, and then when Jesus resurrects from the grave, we got to what? Kill him. We already did that once. Didn't work. Got to kill him again. Oh, he's, he's in heaven. Let's kill all his followers. Man, the reversal of fortunes couldn't be more staggering, though. The poor beggar, once sick and starving, with no earthly possessions, is rich in eternity. He's with God right? Lazarus is indeed helped. He is indeed comforted. The rich man, once wealthy, once healthy, enjoying nothing but the finest things of life, now suffers in the worst torment that death offers in a real place called hell. Don't miss the warning. The warning is clear that the love, the, the love of money can harden your heart and lead you to hell. Just think about where you put your, your hope. Is it the fact that you're going to have enough money when you retire? It's, it's good to be wise. It's good to be a, a good steward, to save. But, but if, the, if the whole market were to crash, would you just say, well, my, worst, my life is not worth living now? I've, I've been tempted to think that. What if we move to Greensburg and this whole thing flops and we now are homeless? That could have happened. Where's your hope? You want to know? Look where your anxieties are. I'm telling you, your anxiety is almost always. Now, side note to that, there are times where you can have a generalized anxiety that's a physical thing that has nothing to do with your response to the reality you're living in. So I want to be clear. But almost always, that's never the case. If you look at the things that make your heart anxious, whether I'm going to get married or whether, whether my spouse is going to live long enough, whether I have enough money, whether I'm going to have kids, whether I'm going to get the raise, you name it, all the different things. If that doesn't happen, we never say, then my, my life is not worth living, but we act as though, because we worry about it, we fret about it, we give it all our attention, all our time. That's exactly what happens to money in our hearts, because money can do so many God things. 
So many God things. It's why, for the most part, America's so spiritually poor often. We don't need God. I don't need, give me my daily bread. I got, I got a fridge full of food. I got bread everywhere. We just don't need them. Oh, it's, it's, it's such a lie. Now, by the way, just to be clear, there are lots of people who have money and give thanks to God for that money. I, I would just go as far to say almost everyone in this room is wealthy in compared to world standards. We're, we're extremely wealthy. But I'm going to tell you right now, if you had no money in your bank account and you knew God, you're far beyond rich. Is that how we think? God help us not to. So, ready for the one-way point? This is the point in the map. Jesus came to bridge the great chasm that exists between mankind or humankind and God. He came to make a way for us to have life with God. This, it's the point. By the way, ready? It's the point of the whole Bible. You come here next week, might not be said the exact same way, but it's the point. It's the point. It's the point that you and I, if we can just be honest, we are idol worshipers. <laughs> we worship creation. We just worship creation and not creator. And, and God knows that. And, and that's called sin. It's called rebellion. And the wages of sin is death. You and I, all of us, deserve the fate that the rich man received. That's what we deserve. The wages of sin is death death. It's what we've earned. We've earned death. And I don't just mean a physical dirt nap. I'm talking in a real place called hell, separated from life, who is God. But God in his kindness, he's so kind. God in his kindness sent his son, Jesus, who has come to bring us life and life abundantly. He hasn't come to just give you a little bit of life. He has come that you might have life with God, that you might know him, that you might love him, that you might enjoy him, and that you might be freed from the love of money and actually just enjoy it. Just enjoy it as a gift from a good God and, and be generous with it, right? So that, so that you can help people in need, not so that you can get God to love you, but because you know of his generous love. Oh, and he's so generous. You want to know how generous God is? And, and you ought to never get tired of hearing this news. He's so generous that he gave his son Jesus willingly. By the way, Jesus willingly went to the cross. No one forced him. No one twisted his arm. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly put on flesh, lived the life that you and I could never live. He perfectly obeyed the law. He was not an idol worshiper. He worshiped the Father in spirit and truth. He himself is God incarnate. And he lives this perfect life. He loves everyone perfectly. And he willingly goes to a cross, which is an extreme measure of torture, in order to be, to be killed. Why? So that it's, it's, Martin Luther would call it the great exchange, right? What do I mean by that? He took the death that you and I deserve to receive because of our sin. The Bible says that he himself became sin. He went to the cross. He substituted what we deserve, which is death, eternal. He received our death so that we might receive his life, his perfect record, so that Jesus receives the punishment that we deserve. But, we, but then we in turn receive forgiveness of sins by putting our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ. But we also receive perfect righteousness, meaning 
that, that by trusting in, in Christ, who is the Lamb of God who has come to take away the sin of the world, you and I can go from rebels and enemies of God to sons and daughters of God by faith alone and trusting in Jesus alone. And how do we receive that? It's all a gift of grace alone. Why is that true? Because, because Jesus had no sin in him, he triumphantly resurrected from the grave. And in doing so, he defeated Satan's sin and death. Satan's a liar. He wants to drag everyone he can to hell. Jesus came to bridge the gap, to bridge the chasm now. Now. Not, not later, right? Well, I'll, I'll repent and believe in the good news in 15 years when I'm doing all, done doing all the things I, I want to do today. You may not have 15 years. You might, but the thought of that, by the way, if the Lord's laying on your heart to trust and believe in him now, you should never, ever turn that opportunity away because you may never be given another one. He's saying, no, trust and believe in Christ. Jesus is saying, I have come to make a way, but there is only one way. Jesus is that way. He is that life. He is that truth. Believe in him. No one gets to the Father except through Jesus Christ and his blood shed to pay for our sins. And when, when God gives you the grace to do that, you're the richest person of all. Why? Because you have life with God. And that's abundantly wealthy. Because no matter what this world offers you, no matter what happens to you, you will be with Abraham and Lazarus and Jesus and all who have gone before living life with God in a, in a new heaven and a new earth forever. So trust him. Believe in him. Believe his words. Get to know Jesus in the Bible. Because if you won't believe the Bible, you wouldn't believe someone from the dead came back and told you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, Father, thank you for sending Jesus to save sinners like us. Father, give us this gift of faith. Help us to believe. Help us to see. Help us to trust you. Lord, loosen our grip on the love of money. Help us to enjoy this gift as a gift from you, but help us to be generous with it. Help us to see the people that are in our lives, that are in need. And Lord, may, may our first response be to go towards them, not walk away from them, not step over them, but to sincerely walk towards them in love as you did towards us. We ask this in Christ's beautiful name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. If you found it helpful, we encourage you to enjoy more of our sermons, find out more information about For the City, or how to partner with us through prayer and giving at www.forthecity.church. For the City exists to magnify Jesus by making disciples who share and show the transforming power of the gospel and plant churches that multiply.